Before we open God's word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this, your word that you have given to us. We're mindful that we are weak and frail as we come to it. You, Holy Spirit, can work a great thing upon the hearts of sinners like us. Where there is comforting needed, would you send it? Where conviction for sin, send it. If conversion is needed, Lord, send it. Lift us up. Encourage our hearts in the gospel. Teach us again to trust in Christ. Would you glorify his name in our hearts and in all this world? We pray it in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 29. We're actually only going to be reading verses 1 through 37. Exodus 29, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments And put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. And you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, 
offered as a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil. And one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons. And wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And you shall take them from their hands. And burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering. As a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. He shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them, because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of his holy word. You've probably caught on by now that these latter chapters of Exodus, really beginning in 24 all the way through 40, are all about worship. I read one preacher the other day, he says, you know, beginning in 24 all the way through the end, it's, it's all about worship, but for a few chapters, when you get to chapter 32 and 33 and 34, where it's about wrong worship. So you could still say that the last 17 chapters of Exodus are all about worship, some of them about the way not to do it. And you know, we've been working our way through, seeing God's instructions for the tabernacle and for the garments of the priest, and this passage tonight begins to ask these questions that gives us the answers as well. How can a sinful people come before the holy God? How, how can we approach him? How will he accept us? He gave us the designs for the priestly garments and now the Lord lays out in chapter 29 in these 37 verses the ordaining of the priests to their office, and the remainder of 29 we'll come back to next week when it describes the work of their priestly office. But this ritual of, of ordination displays the, the proper way of approach to God. How can man come to God? This chapter answers. These verses describe how Moses is to consecrate the priests to the Lord's service. That word consecration there at the beginning in verse 1 and a couple of times throughout it refers to a process of setting something or someone apart. 
so the priests, the, the men, Aaron and his sons, will no longer be um, used for common things. They will be set apart for special, sacred, divine service to the Lord in a particular way that he prescribes. And as we come to this chapter, you may say, yes, well, this, this chapter seems to be all about the high priest and about his sons. Certainly this can't possibly apply to everyday believers. This has nothing to do with any of us and has everything to do with preachers and you know, maybe in other denominations you've got you know, um, bishops and other things like this. This is, this is something all about church government and leaders. And there is certainly some good material in here for leaders. God's leaders should be pure and undefiled. They should be cleansed and clean. They should put away worldliness and take up godliness. They should be mindful of, of passing leadership on, of doing what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, of, of teaching other men, of, of passing along the garments of the priestly service. There's plenty in here about leaders, but, but there's another approach that I would suggest to you is actually the main approach we should take to this text. This text displays what Peter talks about in his first epistle. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says the New Testament believers, that's you, by the way, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, the truth is that what we see here is, is, is an example of what's true for all of us. All of God's people are chosen and consecrated. All of us are chosen and set apart to God and to his particular use. And we are all consecrated to him in the same way that the priests here are consecrated to him. John Currid says it this way in his commentary. He says, we are all priests as many of us as are Christians. That is important, he writes, because we do not gain access to God through a cast of priests, but only through his son, Jesus Christ, the true high priest. You all don't come to God because you show up in this sanctuary and Tim or myself or another minister some other time ago or another minister somewhere in the future stands up here and somehow brings you to God. You don't access God. You don't approach God through any man, but only through the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage preaches to us. Essentially, we're asking this question, how can the profane be consecrated to God? And the answer is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot in here. You know, we laugh about how we shortened it from one chapter to 37 verses. We really could shorten it to each paragraph and go through all of this. But we're going to try to take sort of a, a, a broad scope approach. We're going to look at the bigger picture. Um, and so if our, if our big question is how can we approach God, these three points carry us through the text. We're going to look at the need of approach. Rather, the, the, the need that exists before we can approach you'll understand, the, the way of approach and the proof of approach, the need, the way, and the proof. One of the first things that Moses is told to do is wash the men. Look at verse 4. 
speaking to Moses, he says, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You know, men, we've all had it happen. It's, it's, it's usually either our mother, depending on how old you are, or your wife. You come in from the yard after doing work or from a workout, and thoughtlessly, that woman in your life comes to, to give you a hug because they're thankful for seeing you, and they, they quickly back off as soon as they get within smelling distance. What do they say? You need to take a shower. Aaron and his sons needed to be cleansed and washed. They, they weren't stinky from a long run. They have the stench of sin upon them. Look back at 28. You can see the service they're called to. Chapter 28. God's intention for them. You see there, bring Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. In verse 2 of chapter 28, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. That description of the garments they will wear describes the, the service that they will render. They will minister before the Lord in glory and beauty and holiness. This is their calling. They must be cleansed. For nothing impure can approach the Lord. Now this washing that Moses will will do is not enough to cleanse sin, certainly not. But the water washing of this passage preaches to them of their need for cleansing. As they remove their common clothes, to, to be washed in order to put on holy clothes, it proclaims not just to the men doing this service, but it proclaims to all of the congregation of Israel that these men are not clean in and of themselves, but somebody must wash them. They cannot approach God the way they are. They must be purified. And this washing preaches the same thing to you. If, if you will come near to God, you must be cleansed. You know, we're, we're going to talk about the atoning work of Christ and the cleansing of his blood and the death that, that he undergoes in order that we might come to God. That's here in the sacrifices, we see it. But first, we must let the washing preach to our hearts that we need cleansing, that we need to be washed, that we need to be purified. It, it may seem, you know, to, to good evening worship attenders even on a holiday. It may seem rudimentary for us to talk about sin, to say, you need to remember you're a sinner, but this is fundamental to the gospel. It's fundamental to our life in Christ. You need cleansing from your sin, and you cannot do it on your own. You need cleansing that you cannot do on your own, and it is it is our forgetfulness of this truth that fuels that coldness we feel before the Lord. It's our forgetfulness of our, our sinful condition before Christ came. You know, do you feel dull before God? You know, you don't feel that warmth that you used to feel toward Him. You feel distant from Him. You know, 
does life with God sometimes feel just like drudgery and just a going through the motions? Especially at the end of a year when, you know, if you've been trying to do any kind of devotional systematic approach to, to God's word in some way, at, at, the, at this point in the year you've either long abandoned it or maybe it's just still trying to check off boxes. Or maybe you're like me and you're thinking ahead to January 1st and you're thinking, what can I do to get closer to God? Yes, a, a systematic approach to his word is good. But we must also stop and remember our sinful estate before him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul asks, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What you think and what you say and what you do, these things that go against God are, are original sin, the corruption that, that stains all of who we are, our iniquity has made a separation between us and our God. A- apart from Him, we are lost and dead and lifeless. We need to remember this. We need to remember our former condition. The Valley of Vision speaks of a godly grief over sin. They say this godly grief trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves. And then it goes on to pray a few lines later. Grant that through the tears of repentance, I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. You know, we're, we're, the Bible's not advocating for self-pity. The Christian life is not one where you just feel bad for yourself as much as you can and sort of hope that God will save you or be glad that he did. Jesus did not come for healthy people. He didn't come for people that could take care of their sin problem on their own. The irony of that statement that he makes is that nobody can do it, Right? This is not why he came. He came for those who are diseased by sin, who are sure to die under its weight. And a significant part of our life in Christ is a regular remembering of our former condition. Otherwise, we lose sight of the glory of the gospel. It's a humble reminder of the estate out of which God has called you. Be reminded that you need cleansing, that you cannot do it on your own. We need washing if we will approach God. How, how can we get there? How, how can we approach Him? How can our sin be put away? How can we be received? The way is through the blood. It's the biggest part of, of this passage. Um, the biggest part of this consecration process is starting there in verse 10 down through 28, but but even then you come back to some of the sacrifice in 31 through 34. We're going to focus on the main element that's at play in these sacrifices. There's a lot, and we may be able to argue about which, which is the main element, but we're going to focus on one at least. Look at verse 10. He says this about all, of, all three of these sacrifices. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. With each of these sacrifices, with the bull and the two rams, with each of these sacrifices, the men are to lay their hands on the head of the bull 
before it's slaughtered. Now, you may have heard it suggested at some point that, that this signifies a transference of, of sin from the man into the animal, but that's not quite what's happening. And, and, if, and if you read it that way, you really kind of miss one of the main points. So in order to understand it, actually, if you would, flip over to Numbers chapter 8 in your Bible, or click through to it, however you can get there. Numbers chapter 8, the Levites in Numbers 8 are, are being appointed by God to represent the firstborn Israelites in the tabernacle services. We're going to read several verses. Numbers chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Catch that, that's what we're talking about, laying their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, and you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Keep going though, verse 14. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them, being the Levites, for myself. What's happening? Instead of the Lord requiring all of the firstborn children in Israel to serve as priests or servants in the tabernacle, the Lord has called the Levites in particular to be substitutes for the firstborns. So when the hands were placed on the Levites, it wasn't as if the sin of the congregation was passed into the Levites. They were representing the Levites. These will be the substitutes for our firstborn children. They will stand in the place. They will represent us in this way. And so the same is true of the altars, of the animals as they're sacrificed on the altar of consecration. What does Aaron's sin deserve? The same as yours and mine, death. And if we're to read the sacrificial system with any kind of detail or poignancy, sin, sin earns you a bloody, gory death. If Aaron and his sons will approach God, their sin must be dealt with, and the animal serves as their substitute. God, in his grace and mercy, will receive the death of this bull and these rams in place of Aaron's death. And as he places his hand on the the head of that bull, Aaron is saying, Lord, we would imagine, thank you that you are receiving the death of this one in place of my own. In the sacrificial system of Israel, God graciously accepts the deaths of substitutionary animals in the place of the deaths of his children. This is why Old Testament worship is so bloody. Imagine how much death there needed to be. The blood of bulls and goats, we're going to read it from Hebrews in just a minute. It's just pointing forward to the one whose blood can really atone for sin. These, these bulls and rams, they would need to be sacrificed repeatedly. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Over and over and over again, two a day, 
sacrifices for sin and more if needed. It was a bloody mess. In this particular instance, there's blood on Moses as he's slaughtering the animals. It's, it's on and around the altar. It's sprinkled on the clothes that the priests are wearing. It's smeared on their ears and their thumbs and their big toes. There's blood everywhere. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Because if that penalty is not paid, there is no acceptance before the Lord, for our sin stands against us. Do you see what's required if you would come near to God? God is holy. He, he will not receive sinners. We've already talked about it. The washing reminds us that we need cleansing because we are sinners. We must die if we would come before God. But he has in his grace and his kindness and his mercy graciously decreed that someone may die in your place. Do you realize what marvelous news this is? You can come before God if somebody else would die in your place. Now, it can't just be anybody. Romans 5, 9, Paul writes, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John Currid writes that we no longer need the bloody priesthood and the bloody sacrifices of the temple for Christ has come once for all to shed his blood for eternal satisfaction and eternal purification and eternal atonement. See, the sacrificial system even seen here in the consecration and ordination of these men, it preaches, it points forward to something beyond itself. This is what what Paul talks about in Hebrews chapter 9 where he says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. He's saying, look, if these things for a time worked to bring men before God as they were used over and over and over again, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the Old Testament people could come to God in this old manner, how much more can we come before God because of what Christ has done for us? Because of what the eternal Son of God has done in his death and resurrection. You see, the, the way of approach to God is through no one else but Jesus. His blood is the only one that will give us entrance into God's presence. We must trust him and cling to him. We must receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. We need it. There's a way to have it. What's the proof that we can approach God? How do we know that we can come to him? In the ancient Near East, it was very common for the conclusion of these types of ritual rites for the participants to have a meal together. That's what we see uh, if you look at 31. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. That just means there in the the tabernacle courtyard. 
32, and Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that's in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. A part of this third sacrifice, the second ram, is eaten by Aaron and his sons. Matthew Henry writes, they ate in order to signify that God called them not only servants, but friends. You know, how often do you intentionally share a meal with somebody you don't like very much? Not very often. Not on purpose. Right? We eat and we drink together because we're, we're friends. We fellowship together. There's camaraderie and we're coming together in this rather intimate way. And the same is true here. The, the priests eat those things with which atonement was made to signify God's reception of the atonement and, and to signify their thankfulness and their joy at the benefits that come to them through the atonement. That they can come to God and so they eat and fellowship with Him. It signifies God's presence among them as they've come through the blood of these animals and entered into God's place. One preacher says it is a sign that they are accepted into God's presence. They needed cleansing, they needed atonement, and God has provided for it. He's accepted them into his presence for service, and and I really (laughs) hope it's not too simplistic of an idea. But doesn't this meal here at the end prove that God has accepted them to approach him? He doesn't meet them with wrath, or, or with judgment, or by even sending them away. But rather, he, he meets them in a meal. He sits and dines with them. It's, much, it's very similar to what he did with the elders several chapters ago when they came up on the mountain. It's God's sign to them that he is receiving them as family and friends. And, and the same is true for you in Christ. It's remarkable. Go, go you know, Google on the internet somewhere about meals that you see in the Bible and see how they trace throughout all of redemptive history. At the end of this age, when Christ has returned and he's ruling and reigning on high, do you know how Revelation 19 describes our inheritance and glory? And the angel said to me, John says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are who? Those who who Christ has invited to dine with him, to come and eat with him. You know, these Old Testament Jews, they they know what that means because they remember the times that God dined with them. There's much more than just a meal at the tabernacle and a meal in glory. Some of you all are putting it together, I'm sure. What's one of the main reminders in your regular life as God's people of his reception of you? What is it that he has given to us that we might be reminded on a regular basis of what he has done? It's a meal. Matthew 26, we heard some of it last night. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins, And then there's a verse 29 there at the end. I don't know why I don't read this when we're normally doing it. I should start, I suppose. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Do you see what the Lord's Supper is, is proclaiming to us? That God is present with us. It serves as proof for us that God has come near to us because he comes and dines with us. He's provided a meal for us. It reminds us again and again and again of what God has done for us. You who have nothing but sin to offer to anyone, God has brought you near has satisfied the penalty of your sins so that you might live. Do you see? And he regularly confirms it in a wonderful covenant meal. Let this message be what drives our whole life. And maybe even just this next week, perhaps. We're so forgetful. Remember that God has redeemed you from sin. And then he's brought you near to him through the the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom this whole passage points. He has called you to come and live and serve him forever. Just as God called and equipped and consecrated these priests, so also you who were once dead in trespasses and sins, you have been made alive together with Christ. We have every reason to rejoice and be glad. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, for the sake of your Son, send your Holy Spirit now to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Show us afresh our great need of saving. Show us afresh our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has bled and died for us and who lives again. Show us afresh, remind us again that you are near, that you are close, that you are with us. Come and help us that we may believe these things and so walk with you. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.